Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. In verses 14 to 17, and Hebrews 12 continues the athletic metaphor that really began back in verse 1 of chapter 12. You know it by now, I hope. The life of a Jesus follower, the life of a Christian has been likened to a race that we are to run. And um, this is the fifth of five warning passages that we find, the last one that we find in the book of Hebrews. And uh, this morning, we are directed toward a couple of things that we are to chase in our Christian faith race. We're also warned against some things that will make us fall back, that will make us get off pace in our race. And finally, we're encouraged to run this race with a very intense intentionality. And uh, we read this earlier, but before we begin studying it verse by verse together, let's go to the Lord in prayer once more. Heavenly Father, we need you this morning. Uh, We need you every hour. And um, Lord, I pray that as we study your word that we read earlier, as we reread it, and we look at each one of the precious words that you've given to us Lord, that your Holy Spirit, who's present in the lives of every believer, who's present calling anyone here who may not have trusted in you, calling them to faith, Lord, I pray that he would have completely free reign here this morning. There would be no obstructions from Satan or sin or self that prevents us from knowing your word, more importantly, from from responding to it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so our faith race following Jesus Christ, it requires us, first of all, verse 14 tells us to run differently. We are to run differently. And there's a couple of ways we're given that we will be different in how we run our race in following Christ. First of all, in harmony, the fifth warning begins with God commanding us in verse 14. He says, follow peace with all men. And honestly, while follow here in the King James, it's, it's completely accurate. The Greek word that it's translated from, uh, dioko, has a little bit stronger meaning. It means to pursue Um, We've got some law enforcement officers in our church family, and uh, maybe some of you have them in your extended family. For for them, is there a difference to a policeman between following someone and pursuing them? Definitely, right? Um, Dioko means to chase. God is telling us here in verse 14 when he says, follow peace with all men. He's saying pursue peace with all men. Chase after peace with all men. Why do we have to chase it? Because of sin. (laughs) That's why. Um, Sin is the cause of there not being peace in our world. 
First of all, separation from God because of our sin means we don't have peace with him. And when that's the case, uh, we inevitably will not have peace with others. Do you want to know why there's no peace? Do you know why we have war in Ukraine right now? Sin. (laughs) That's why. Um, Do you want to know why there's crimes that will happen today, even here in our community and in our state? Because of sin. But the Christian, we have had that vertical peace restored. We've had that reconciled. And that is the basis for our capability to have peace with others in our horizontal relationships. It's also the basis for God's command here in verse 14 and for him telling us to chase, to chase after harmony, chase for harmony in our uh, race of faith. God commands the same thing to us through the apostle Paul in Romans 12, 18. There he says, if it is possible and as much as depends on you, be at peace, live peaceably with all men. Sometimes it is impossible, is it? Um, we can do all that we can, or as God's word says there, as much as depends on us. We can do all that we can. Um, trying to live harmoniously with others, but it takes two to tangle, right? And um, sometimes peace isn't possible. The great Reformation leader, Martin Luther, he once said, peace if possible, but truth, truth at all costs. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, great Baptist pastor of the 19th century, said that to pursue union or peace, at the expense of truth, that that's treason to the Lord Jesus Christ. But if it's possible, (laughs) and as much as depends on us, God tells us here in verse 14 that we're to chase, we're to chase after peace, running in harmony with all men. That is what God is asking of us here. Very important that we understand this is not a passive role that we just let happen, or man, I hope that's my experience in the Christian life. It's a command of God right here, that we're to chase it, we're to pursue it, we're to actively strive for peace as we run our faith race. And it's the same thing for the second thing that's mentioned there in verse 14. We're not only to chase after peace, but it also says that we're to chase and pursue holiness. Very important, because it says, In verse 14, at the end, without it, no one, no one can see the Lord. Well, that's pretty important then, isn't it? Without holiness, no one can see the Lord. As vital to running our faith race uh, properly and and in a Christ-like manner, as, as vital as harmony is, this virtue here, holiness, uh, it is, is all the more important. It, it has an impact on our intimacy with God. Now, if you were to look at, at the Greek, and you can do it. You can go Google this verse and put in Bible Hub and just hit INT. It will take you right here. But, but you've got some interesting things here. Um, because peace, Irene, if your name's Irene, that's what your name means in Greek. All right, peace, that's a feminine. Irene is a feminine noun. Holiness That's a masculine noun. And it says here, without which no one can see the Lord. And the which there is singular and masculine. So guess what it's referring to? It's referring to holiness. 
I mean, peace is important. God's saying chase after it, but he's saying chase after holiness because without it, without it, you can't see the Lord. And what does he mean by that? Well, if you aren't chasing after holiness, it's going to affect your intimacy with God. Uh, Let me quote Spurgeon once more. No man ever became holy by chance. He didn't. There must be resolve. There has to be a desire. There has to be a panting after obedience to God, or else you will never have it. Better yet, let me quote our superior Savior, Jesus Christ. In Matthew 5, 8, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed or happy, happy are the pure in heart, or happy are the holy, for they shall see God. Jesus is saying the same thing that God is saying here in verse 14, isn't he? That if we want to see God, if we want to experience if we want to maintain a, a close, intimate relationship with God, if we want to know God's will, and if we want to receive his guidance, if we want to receive his providence in our lives, we need to chase after holiness. When you were saved, when you first, think about that day you first trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, do you understand that you were made holy? It's an awesome thing. Um, the Holy Spirit came to indwell you and to seal you and you were set apart from sin and you were set apart to holiness. It's a positional holiness that happened that moment you trusted in Christ as Savior. It happened just by you simply trusting, just just through faith, you trusting in Jesus as your Savior. But the race of the Christian life is making what is true of us positionally also true of us practically. Uh, We are to live in our positional holiness that we're already in just by faith. We are to live out that positional holiness, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ as we grow in our relationship with the Lord. Will God ever ask you to do a single thing that he will not empower you to do? No. So when he says chase after peace, chase after holiness, he's also going to give you the strength to do it. when he says chase after holiness, like, like Spurgeon said, with, with a resolve, with a, a, a desire, a, a panting after obedience to God, with that command also comes the power to do it. The power to say no to sin. The power to say yes to Jesus Christ. The power to reckon ourselves, to consider ourselves dead to sin, no longer under its dominion. And also the power to consider ourselves alive unto God as a new creation. That that can chase after holiness. That that will yield our whole selves in obedience to God's commands. And and that power that he gives is grace. I'm going to get there in just a moment. Listen, Christian, if you will chase after harmony and holiness, you'll be running differently. You'll be definitely running differently than the world. Honestly, you'll be running differently than a lot of people who call themselves Christians. Um, Others will notice you. More importantly, they'll notice the one in you that you're following in this faith race, Jesus Christ. Secondly, in our faith race, Jesus desires us to be running faithfully. And, And for that to happen, there has to be a diligence to doctrine. Verse 15, it commands us to run faithfully by diligently looking. Those are the first two words, looking diligently. By diligently looking at God's grace so that we don't 
fall short of it so that we don't fail of it. Now, this is important because if we don't accurately understand the doctrine of grace that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will not run our faith race well. We will not finish it strong like God desires for us to. These four verses here, 14 to 17, they are in the unquestionably practical final chapters of the book of Hebrews. But God has spent the vast majority of this book-long sermon describing the doctrines of grace. Do you remember? It was a long time. It wasn't that long ago, though. It was a long time that we were in that about Jesus being our superior Savior, and that our new covenant is better than our old covenant. It was heavy doctrinal stuff. And we get to these practical uh, parts now. But it's so essential that we understand the doctrine that we were taught at the beginning of this book, for the, for the majority of it. We need to know what God means by grace. Satan knows that the gospel is mighty to save. He knows that it is his vanquishing. So you know what he likes to do? He loves nothing more than to get Christians goofed up on grace. He can't destroy the gospel, so he attempts to restrict its impact, its power, by tempting people to either add to it or to take something away from it, like adding works as a cause for our salvation or removing them as an effect of our salvation. He wants to negate God's grace with legalism. Or he wants to negate God's grace by making people think it means they have a license to just keep on sinning. And that is what God warns us of in this phrase here in verse 15. Lest you fail of the grace of God. God says in his word that if you think his grace means that your works contribute to your salvation as a cause... You don't understand God's grace. It's undeserved, amen? It's unmerited. But God says here in verse 15 as well, if you think God's grace means that you can just keep on sinning with indifference, you also don't understand God's grace. And you may not have experienced its saving power in your life. You see, when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, a radical transformation should be evident. It is a progress it is in my life. <laughs> Amen? It's a progress. Sometimes it's not as fast as we'd like it to be. That radical transformation can take time. But a, a desire uh, for, for chasing after peace and holiness, it should be evident because of that transformation. Um, be sure that the Holy Spirit, he never calls a man to faith. He never indwells a man and leaves him like he is. He does not do that. Praise God. Jesus Christ welcomes us. We sang it last Sunday. He welcomes us just as I am, but never, never to leave us just as we are. The Holy Spirit that indwells us at the moment of salvation, he enables us, he empowers us to actually obey the commands that God gives to us. He enables and empowers us to be continuously conform more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. So please don't let Satan confuse you about the gospel of grace. Don't get that doctrine goofed up. Verse 15 says, look at it. Look at it diligently. It says, keep looking at it. I'm going to keep living in it diligently. Never forget that God's grace to us in Jesus, that our salvation from hell, uh, it is, that's not just it. 
It's not just salvation from hell and a ticket to heaven one day. A.W. Tozer put it like this. Um, yes, salvation is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Amen? Salvation is a gift. But it is a gift that once received also always results in a shift. A gift that results in a shift. I thank God that his grace to us in Jesus Christ, yes, it is leniency for when we do sin, but the best way to thank him for that gift, to thank him for his leniency, his pardon of us, is to also realize that grace is the enabling gift and power for us to live in victory over sin. Jesus follower, look diligently at the gospel truth that grace is power for your life. Power to run after harmony and holiness. It's not just pardon. When we don't get that right, when we get grace goofed up, when we misunderstand God's design in it, there are impacts. We'll see manifestations of that misunderstanding in our lives. And here's the effects at the rest of verse 15 and into verse 16. Here is the effects of you and I not looking diligently, of us not understanding God's grace to us in Jesus Christ like the Bible portrays it. We will not experience the purpose and the power of his grace. Instead of living in victory over sin and becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, these verses describe sins that will keep us from running our race faithfully, things that will get us off pace in our Christian race. The first one mentioned is bitterness. Verse 15, it says, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Here's what it looks like when you do. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. The sin of bitterness can sprout. If we don't give diligence to doctrine, if we don't understand the grace of God that is ours in Jesus Christ, that it enables us, that it empowers us to kill sin in our life, bitterness can take root. And this phrase in verse 15 is likely a reference to Deuteronomy 29, 18. God says there, so that there may not be among you a man or a woman or a family or a tribe whose heart turns away from the Lord our God, that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness and wormwood, do you know what wormwood is? It's poison. Poison. Just like bitterness. And letting bitterness sprout and not be weeded out of your life, it is like drinking poison and then waiting for whoever you're bitter towards to die. Verse 15 says that its presence troubles us and thereby many be defiled. Back in Deuteronomy 29, 18, God says, lest, lest there be a man or a woman or a family or even a whole tribe. Do you see what happens when bitterness gets into a man or a woman? Don't stay there. It don't stay there. It says here, lest many be defiled. I'm afraid that bitterness is a sin that does so much more than sprout because it's so rarely dealt with in our lives. Um, it's a sin that we might even justify, especially if we've been wronged. And it ought to be violently weeded out of our lives. Too often, it's gently cultivated. Do you understand that bitterness never remains in your heart? Never. It will always eventually 
present itself in your practices. It's never only an attitude. It will result in actions. And not understanding the grace of God that gives us the power to just yank that sprouting root of bitterness from the ground. Yank that wicked sin out by the root. Not understanding God's grace and not doing that, it will allow it to grow. And it will allow it to spread in your lives and the lives of others. And it will be a prevention to any peace you might be trying to chase. It will be a harm to any holiness that God says you are to be pursuing. A second sin mentioned in verse 16 that results from you and I not diligently looking to uh, and embracing the power of God's grace. It says in verse 16 is, is fornication. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person. Now, the context of verses 16 and 17 help us understand that God isn't describing here, what, referring to what we typically think of when we, when we think of fornication. He's not talking about physical immorality, uh, sexual sin. He's talking about a, a spiritual unfaithfulness to God here. Uh, let me read verse 16 in its entirety. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. So an Old Testament example from the life of Esau is provided for us here. His spiritual unfaithfulness, fornication uh, to God, it was evidenced, it says here, in profanity. And, and again, God is not talking here about cursing or any form of evil communication verbally. Uh, the English word profane comes from two Latin components, pro, which means either for or against. It could mean either one, depending on the context. And then phanom, which means, actually, means temple, but it, it means something holy, uh, something very special, something worthy. And so in this context, it's saying against holy. That's what profane means. Against something special, valuable. Against something worthy. And Esau, it says here in verse 16, Esau, by his values and by his choices and by his actions, he was profane. That was his fornication. He was against something holy, special, or worthy. Do you remember what Esau did? I mean, we've got a little bit of it there in verse 16. It goes on in verse 17. He was the firstborn, the firstborn to Isaac. He was, he was to be given the covenant blessing of that birthright as the firstborn. And he went out hunting. He was a hunter. He went out hunting one day. He came back exhausted, hungry. And just totally spent. And he saw his little brother stirring a pot of stew. There's probably a lot of lessons we can learn from this. For one, eat before you go hunting. Right? We've got some hunters in this church. Or at least take a peck of nabs with you. So you don't fall into this. Uh, what he saw? He saw Jacob. Saw that his little brother. That conniver. That schemer Jacob. And Jacob traded him a bowl of it. At the expense of Esau's birthright. Now, was Esau forced to do that? No. Now, he was not forced to accept that offer. Esau gave what was worthy away. <laughs> That's profanity. Being against something special, something holy. What we're warned against here. What we're warned against when we don't understand or apply the power of God's grace in our lives for victory over sin. His profanity Esau's profanity is evidenced in this terrible train. Here's the problem. Esau was so concerned about his temporary and material and physical needs that he gave them priority over what was more important, what was most important. 
his rights as a firstborn son, his responsibility as an heir to God's covenant blessing. So what is the application for you and I here in 2022? Well, do we ever give priority to our temporary, material, physical needs? A lot of times even just the desires, not needs, desires. Over what's more important, our spiritual needs, our God-given responsibilities as heir of the new covenant that we learned so much about in the book of Hebrews? What is our responsibility as an heir to the new covenant? Because we've been saved. What is our rights? What what is our responsibility? Well, it's it's to run intentionally. Esau didn't. He didn't chase after peace and holiness. He didn't understand the power of God's grace to live in victory over sin. That wasn't even on his radar. And as a result, he experienced the features of disobedience. Verse 17 describes the sorrow. Let's read it. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Describing the sorrow that Esau experienced when the blessings of God's life, when he traded them away. That sorrow marked his life for the rest of his life. Uh, The choice he made from a wicked value system and impacted not just him, but even all of his descendants. Esau didn't just trade his blessing away. traded away theirs as well. Church, how I wish we could see the way that our choice to sin would impact not just our lives, but even the lives of those we love. What victory we could have over temptation if we would keep that in mind. I wonder how many Christians have tossed away, have traded away their testimony for something temporary. It also tells us in verse 17 about the finality of disobedience. Does sin have consequences? Always has. God's always been clear on that from Genesis 3. Um, when we don't obey God's word in this passage, when you and I say, you know what, I'm going to, no, I mean, I don't, I'm tired. I don't feel like chasing after peace and holiness. When we only view God's grace as nothing more than a ticket into heaven, just pardon for sin, when we don't recognize, when we don't use its power in our lives to help us overcome sin, when we're going to experience sin's consequences. Esau did. Some of those consequences, even when sin is confessed and forgiven, some of those consequences are lifelong. They were for David. He's confronted by his sin. Immediate repentance. Still had some consequences that plagued him for the rest of his life. Uh, here in verse 17, it says that Esau found no place of repentance. Now, from the account referred to, that's from Genesis, I believe what God means here is that Esau, though he might have been sorrowful, he wasn't really even looking to repent, to turn around. He wanted the consequences turned around. Um, However, even if he was, there wasn't time for it. There was no place of repentance, at least not in a way that would alter the consequences of his choices and actions. Church, God has always, this is the beauty of the gospel for anyone who can hear. God promises you, and he always will, full and free forgiveness for our repentance. But he has never, never, and he doesn't, he has never promised us tomorrow for our procrastination to confess and repent of our sins. Scripture teaches that there is a finality 
to disobedience. There is a final call that God offers to human beings. I don't know when that will be. It could be right now. This could be it. Um, We don't know when Christ may return. It could happen before the end of this morning. We don't know when we will leave this earth and step into eternity. It could happen for me before I get down off behind this pulpit. We don't know. The beautiful thing for you and me is that if you are here this morning and if you are in earshot of God's word or you've been reading this, um, that place of repentance is still here for you. He might not have found it. You found it. God's holding it out. There's still opportunity to obey. God has prepared a place of grace for you. Um, For those who never trusted in Christ the Savior, a place to receive pardon for their sins. Um, to receive him as Savior. If you've never done that, do so this morning in prayer right now, even as I'm talking, confess your sins to him and trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross to forgive your sins, to give you new life, eternal life. But Christian, pardon for sin is offered to you too. Uh, A place of grace, a place of repentance is found right here this morning. Uh, Opportunity to obey God's call for you to run your faith race differently. By chasing after peace and chasing after holiness. To run your faith race faithfully. Never abusing God's grace by continuing on in sin with indifference. Instead, living in the pardoning power that that God provides for us in Jesus Christ. Power that frees us from sin's former dominion over us. Power to chase after peace and holiness. That's what you have in relationship with Jesus Christ. Some people say, well, I've got religion. But religion is crazy. It says, I will obey God, and then maybe, hopefully, just maybe he will accept me. That's nonsense. That's not what the Bible talks about. It talks about relationship. And people who know that, they said, by faith in Jesus, God already accepts me. (laughs) And so I'm going to obey. Joyfully, I'm going to obey him. Joyfully, I'm going to chase after peace and holiness. Will you? Obedience isn't the condition of God's grace. Obedience isn't how we get it. It's a sphere in which we enjoy it as a follower of Jesus. God has given you the opportunity this morning to commit to run intentionally, realizing the consequential features of disobedience, the finality of disobedience. Will you come to his grace this morning? Will you live in the pardon and power of God's grace as Tommy comes? Don't wait. Don't wait. A place of grace, a place of repentance is found here this morning. However, the Holy Spirit's used his word to call you to respond today. I ask that you'd obey.